Seventh Avenue Pizza, the official pizza of the Soda Pod. The Soda Pod, the official beer and hockey podcast of Seventh Avenue Pizza. Welcome to another special edition of the MNCAA podcast. Um, without Nick Maxson this week, uh, he's taking a week off, but uh, Nate and I here again. But we it's a special edition because we are joined by a very special guest, author Sam Jeffries, uh, author of the new book, uh, Legacy on Ice, uh, Blake Jeffreyon and the Fastest Game on Earth. Um, I've got it sitting right beside me. I just wanted to make sure I got the title right. Uh, but Nate's got it in his hand. I've got it on my desk. Also, beside also me. next to me. So yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. So yeah, we're, for, those, we're for those watching the video, I just punched up the book. So if you're listening exactly. on audio, you're just really confused. <laughs> As they usually are when we point to stuff in the <laughs> yes. podcast. But uh, uh, Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Having me, appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I just I know we want to kind of talk about uh, obviously um, if. Those of you who are out there haven't bought the book yet, you should and read it because there's a lot of great stuff about college hockey and USA hockey um, and just the overall life of Blake Jeffreyon, which I think a lot of Gopher fans that are listening should be very familiar with, uh, especially his college, his collegiate career. Um, so, yeah, just kind of uh, I mean, I just want to jump in right now and just kind of say what what made you uh, what drew you to create to to want to write this book and uh that kind of what's the genesis from all right following um obviously being uh being very close to badger hockey and um just how does that process looked uh from when you kind of got the idea of saying oh i want to i want i want to write this book yeah yeah i had a, a friend kind of push me to it and and i've been you know for fun writing some magazine articles and and kind of dabbling here and there and he asked me, uh, you know, how many of you, how many of you sold? And I said, well, I've sold all of them. He said, it's too easy. It's time to write your book. And and if you were going to write it, what would it be about? And I said, well, there's this really incredible story uh, about a guy who, you know, I was on, on campus with. This isn't, you know, it's not, um, I mean, it's, it's historical now looking back. Right. But at the time uh, it was pretty, pretty recent history. Um, but I knew, uh, you know, was on, on campus and, and followed Blake's career and knew his family history and that he was the first fourth generation NHL player. But, you know, I started digging into it a little and, and making calls around the very small hockey world, as, as you both know well, and realized that there was so much more to, to both his story and then also to the fact that he had been, you know, almost bizarrely in, in each of these places across the world of, of North American hockey, uh, unintentionally, right? Almost in a Forrest Gump way that, you know, history's happening and here he is, he's pops up in it. And so I got connected with him and, and I think he was you know, a little skeptical at first. I called him out of the blue. I don't know the guy from Adam and, uh, but he, he was really generous in opening up a lot of doors to me. And so, you know, whether it's top brass at USA hockey or, uh, uh, you know, newly named coach of the Minnesota wild, John Hines, or, uh, you know, folks in the college hockey world, sure, um, and in, in the juniors and, and in the media side, um, I, I could really talk to whomever and, and did and, and found all these incredible stories. And then, you know, the book is, of course, about his entire life, including his very brief pro career. But, uh, you know, I, I found the college part so compelling. And, and I think 
was there, was was such a huge fan of the, that level of the game, uh, and didn't didn't realize why the things were happening were happening that I was experiencing, right? And so much of it was a trickle down from the 0405 lockout and um uh you know and, and the implementation of the salary cap and then that has this huge downstream effect on the college game and watching these guys leave earlier and earlier and earlier and and you know as I wrote in the book the uh, the Kyle Tourists of the world becoming the norm uh and not the exception and so Blake being being an American um, playing for a blue bud uh, program and then being a four-year player who wins the Hobie in his fourth year takes the team to the national championship is not really a story that you hear anymore that is a disappearing element to the game and, and I was just drawn to, to that for so many reasons yeah and that kind of oh sorry Nate go ahead I was gonna say no you really are and you kind of yeah hit on it I think one of the interesting things is that the changing hockey world where yeah you have you discuss southern growth you discuss the origins of the NTDP program and Blake going there um, post lockout college hockey is its own changing and just even seeing those recruiting. And yeah, you were a hundred percent on there where it's, you have a four-year player is a senior winning the Hobie Baker and you get that for the next few years. And then, but like we're in a stretch right now where you're seeing it, where it's fresh, like the top three were freshman, freshman, sophomore last right. year. Um, We've had what three freshmen, two freshmen in the last uh, ten years win it. We've had some sophomores, and yeah, you're seeing players where maybe they'll stay when they stay three to four years. Now it's two to three, and as much as you get the one and the one and done, they're not as much anymore. But it's still, yeah, it is really just interesting seeing that kind of changing landscape through the eyes of um, a single hockey player. Yeah, and I think for me, Cole Caulfield is so indicative of that, right? That that being obviously the only other uh, Hobie out of Wisconsin, but um, winning it in the COVID year, uh, sophomore player, and then is not at the ceremony and is already gone and in the pros um, rather than, than stick around mm -hmm. to accept. And it's not a shot at cold. It's just an indication of, of where things are headed. And, and, uh, and the book is really in part about why. Yeah, it almost too seems, I mean, I always associated this with the, the old, like, her Brooks story of why, oh yeah, we're going to make new Mariucci Olympic size because this is the training ground for the Olympics. And this is kind of where you're going to get the best players, but they're going to stay for four years and they're just going to train to be Olympians. And now obviously with the decline of four-year players and those star players staying long, obviously, I mean, there's not too much big ice left and that, that those right. two well, even things have always kind of, exactly. Those two things have always kind of, they've always kind of combined to me in terms of like that direction. But um, obviously that was kind of one of the big points that I, I kind of stood out there and obviously you did a lot of, uh, a lot of research into that and, and to get into, to just get it into print and as succinctly as you did. And do you, do you ever see that coming back? Do you ever see that changing, uh, in terms of the tides going back unless the NHL, I mean, maybe it does have to be some sort of NHL rule change or, um, some fundamental shift at a level above but it's it because it's always seemed like for a lot of gophers fans especially kind of local local angle it on a little bit here with just for some of the some of the guys that do stay it's like when when logan cooley was gonna stay before he ended up leaving everyone said wow this is just amazing look at the culture because matthew nyes did it and uh brock faber stayed um so a couple of guys who i mean brock faber i think is the exception because he was a senior but um 
I think Matthew Nye's even staying that one extra year was a little bit, I mean, he could have gone pro and just seeing a couple of cases where they stayed just a little bit longer. Some, I think a lot of people want to jump to say, Oh, maybe, maybe the, the tide is changing. And uh, do, how, how do you see kind of that potentially changing if it can at all, or if you'd never foresee it coming at all? You know, it's amazing uh, what little changes uh, in the collective bargaining agreement can have such a huge downstream effect. And, and I think, uh, I think that any change can't be driven by culture. Like as great as it is to play college hockey and wear your school's colors and, you know, especially in a place like Minnesota where if you come up through the high school system, even if you went to NTDP for two years or something like that, come back, play for play for the U or, or St. Cloud or whatever. Um, like we all would love to think that and it's, it's wonderful and romantic, but the, the plain fact of the matter is um, – you know, the minimum salaries keep getting higher and higher and the age of the average player uh, at the NHL level gets lower. That's that's in big part because of the, the hard salary cap. Right. And so, you know, there's a ton of benefit to a hard salary cap for uh, pro hockey and that there's more parity across the league. And you're not, you know, in a baseball situation where Dodgers have you know unlimited money to spend um which is like it's no fun for i'm a like lifelong manager fan and it's awful to watch um so it's, that's a beautiful benefit to the nhl but it but it has the effect of um uh you know really impacting that that game at, at the lower levels whether it's college or or juniors and so could you tweet that sure um there there are definitely tweaks i mean they've they've you know, NBA played with the the one and done rule and, and that's had changes over time. And, you know, the only constant is change, but I think it really, it does come to, you know, uh, page 127 um, appendix C of that collective bargaining agreement is really, and then you see it play out on the ice, uh, you know, in the, in the barns that we all want to watch games at. Time to the appendix. You, you did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, yeah. And I, I had some, I had really fascinating conversations and, and, uh, and Blake was able to tee up some folks for me who were uh, on, uh, you know, just off the record, but really sharing with me um, some of the things that came out of the CBAs and, and what, um, you know, really what had been traded at the table. Right. And, and it's just amazing. Like having, as I said it before, having lived the history, then then to watch it, just like wow, these guys are getting younger and they're leaving earlier, and 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 then the other half is they're getting older, right? And these guys are they're playing out their junior eligibility and starting at 21, 22, and and you know they got sideburns coming out of their helmets. It's just <laughs> uh, uh, disparity is wild. Yeah, so we're in middle ground of you have older freshmen, you have younger freshmen. And I think there's a little bit of a difference of where the stars are maybe staying that one extra year to understand that, hey, if I can dominate in college hockey, I'm ready to make that jump to the NHL versus right. I can learn it in the pros. And you don't always get that opportunity. Um, Sam, you mentioned earlier that Blake was a little skeptical at first. And you kind of had to convince him, like, what, what were you able to do to open up and just kind of get him going and be able to tell his story? Yeah, I mean, certainly the research, right? And uh you guys have interviewed plenty of hockey players. Like, you know, sometimes you'd, you'd ask them, I'd say, okay, I'm, you know, we're in, uh, you know, we're on the road in North Dakota and it's, it's November, 2009 and it's game two of a weekend. And, and he's like, I barely remember 2009. Right. And that, I mean, it was, what are you talking about? I'm like, I've watched all this game tape and everything else. Um, and then I would come back with really specific details. Right. And I'd say, okay, I watched this footage, you know, I went through, if you look at, 
you know, your second shift in the third period and, and you see somebody coming out of the box and how do you act, then it would start to open up. And I think he appreciated that I had done the research. I'd taken the time to, to care. And then, um, you know, like I said, have, have conversations with people around the hockey world. And I'm sure that they were reporting back to him. Okay. This guy is, uh, uh, you know, he's not just a waste of your time. He's, he's asking smart questions and, and comes in caring about the game, not interested in blowing anybody's life up or anything like that. Um, and then, you know, he was more and more forthcoming and that included, um, you know, conversations around his injury, which is, is such a like for me i thought it was such a sensitive topic and and um uh he but by i wrote it at the end and, and by the point we had got uh, by the time i got to that point um uh, to talk about sensitivity around the injury and what it meant and his his thoughts and and um uh you know struggles he had with suicidal thoughts and things like that we were already in a good place and and then the door was wide open and he was really um you know happy to to share and and so you know and then he i think gave the nod to, to his wife and to his folks to to be be just as forthcoming with me yeah without uh kind of giving away you, you really there, there is a very big part of that it's the end where it touches on um blake's career injury which for those who don't know uh he had a skull fracture uh in 2012 during the lockout uh, playing for the uh, montreal canadians uh, AHL team and it goes it does go really deep just kind of in his mindset and just where he is and making the decision to eventually retire from hockey um and who I guess also just who who all did you uh, get the chance to talk to and have those doors open up um and just what was that experience like for you uh yeah I mean the experience was amazing and I think people were just so generous with their own time and and with their recollections, but, you know, I spoke to the, the trainer who, uh, was ringside when he was injured. And then the surgeon who, um, uh, you know, essentially did brain surgery to operate on his skull and, and, um, take the pieces of his skull that were laying on his brain and remove them in a safe way. So I think it, it was just really incredible to me how, uh, folks were willing to, to recall, those difficult moments. And, and then, you know, there was such a memory for him as a player at, at all these levels and really a guy who never stepped in and succeeded right away. Right. Whether it was at Culver military Academy um, where so many have come out of and, and uh, you know, stories about him really struggling as a B team guy and then NTDP and same thing. And I had a long conversations with John Hines about that and, and uh, what it meant you know, how precarious that program was for so long and then what it meant to have Blake there and be part of what really cemented it uh, in the place that it is today. And and so, yeah, it was it was just incredible to me that people were so willing to to talk and be honest and then had so much to say, both about this guy and just about like their, the corner of hockey they inhabited, where there was somebody like Ron DiGregorio, who, you know, has a 40-year vision for USA Hockey and, and – uh, you know, built it in, in his, you know, built it in his vision um, in many ways uh, or folks like um, uh, guys who were or trainers and, and, you know, had, had uh, helped Blake move into his dorm and were, were fan volunteers and that kind of thing. Uh, they, they all had a lot to tell. It was pretty cool. That was uh, one thing that I loved. Uh, Bob Landauer, correct? That's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that is somebody who I think a lot of college hockey fans and a lot of like classic college hockey people can relate to. And the more he kept coming up in the book and when you read the, when everyone listening, when you read the book, you're going to, you're going to love this. You're going to love who this guy is. Um, but what was it like interacting with him and, and just how indicative is, is kind of his attitude about college hockey, kind of a, a, a way of loving the game that you can find in, in Minnesota, you can find it in Bemidji, you can find it in Duluth, uh, X, Y, and Z. I mean, every, every campus in the country that was old school booster really, I mean, just rah, rah fans. It's hard to describe any other way. Every, every, every campus has a bottle. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, it was, it was, I mean, you know, a guy who'd volunteered and, and, uh, compiled stat sheets for years and years and was there in August to move the freshmen in. And, and, uh, you know, especially for kids who had moved far to be a pseudo family figure and, and, you know, be such a big help, uh, as they adapted to campus. But, uh, you know, it was such a reminder for me too that, that looking at the fan bases through uh, viewing them as, as alumni centered is such a mistake, right? Because uh, there are, are so many folks who are, are lifers um, wherever they are and not necessarily in that town, but, but lifers on Saturday night, right. And they, they got a half season ticket package and, and they are there every Saturday, every Friday, whether they're coming from Northern Wisconsin to Madison or um, the cities up North or, or what have you. And, and so, um, uh, those guys remember everything and they remember who came before and they remember who came after, but they have such a passion, uh, and such a, uh, you know, a protectiveness of, of the, of the crest and, and the history. And then I think, um, you know, talk like we were talking earlier about, about romance and about, you know, being so proud that the culture is enough to retain these guys. Um, I think are really honest about it, but there is, there is a real level of heartbreak for for feeling like you, I mean, literally raise them up, right? Uh, and then and then to watch them go early and and uh, um, uh, I think is it it's very personal um, for so many of these guys to to send them off to the next level. They're not fans of college hockey because they're prospects. They're fans of college hockey because they really want to get back to the Frozen Four. Yeah, college hockey. I mean, it's it's about the people. It's about the communities. It's about just those barns every Friday and Saturday night. That's the thing. Yeah, I love reading a little bit about Bob because you're like, oh, I I can I can tell you about three people like at different sure. campuses who we all we all know those people. And, and I say this as somebody who probably knows way too much more about college hockey details in his head than really anyone should. <laughs> right. I always hope that like when Jeopardy's on, they'd be like, hey, here's a college hockey player hometown yeah. category. I'd be like, okay, finally. this Great, great. Yeah, yeah, I'm a winner now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah, I know where Mike Smatula lives still, and he hasn't played for the Gophers in eight years or something <laughs> sure, like that. <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> uh, no, I mean, some of that came out too, and it, it was – the book ended up being shorter um, than originally was. A lot of it cut, got cut down, but – uh, one of the things that that got left on the cutting room floor was a, a retelling of the water bottle fight between uh, Wisconsin and North Dakota, you know, back in the early '80s, and and that was a shame, not because that story needs to be told again, like we all know it, and and you know, you go on YouTube and watch it, and I mean, it's it's a Donnie Brick, like it's an all-time great one, um, but because uh, Rob Andringa, who uh, went on to uh, to win the national championship in Wisconsin in 1990. Um, he was a stick boy on that team because he lived on the same street as Bob Johnson. 
and uh, and he's in there, you know, this 13 year old kid um, peeing his pants, and and in the middle of this brawl with all these these you know 80s nut job uh, um, uh, skaters, and and but for me that was that, that that's college hockey, right? It's like, well, you got a job as a stick boy because you know you mow Bob's lawns in the summer, and then he puts you there, and and the guy's this legend, but but to you, he's just the neighbor, and then you end up playing for him, and you know winning the fifth national championship in school's history and, and like, what a, you know, what an amazing neighborhood thing. Yeah, it really is. Especially, I mean, I was, I've been kind of thinking about it partially just throughout the season and partially from even reading the book where just kind of, this feels as the, this is the beginning of a new era of Wisconsin hockey with Mike Hastings, because you keep going back from Badger Bob starting the program. Then you have just Jeff Sauer who comes from the program who come? Who oh, sorry? Who comes from being with Badger Bob? Then Mike Eaves is one of the greats. Um, Tony Granado is one of the greats from Wisconsin and brings in his brother or several alums. And you have this just this continuation of Badger Bob's legacy. And finally, with Mike Hastings, it's kind of the first time that Wisconsin has gotten away from that. Yep. And just the 60 years of, yeah, there's so many of those. It's here's a guy from Wisconsin. I mean, you can pretty much say almost say the same things with like with the Suter family. Right. Yeah, I think uh, uh, we did a book signing uh, around the the Badger Michigan game um, uh, beginning of November, I guess, and had a ton of fun. And Blake and I signed books and then went down the locker room and, uh, you know, he gave the pregame speech and and let the boys up and everything. And and it was phenomenal, but got to spend some time with Coach Hastings. And, you know, I pointed out that ever since the book came out, they seem to be winning. So no coincidence there. (laughs) Uh, uh, But, you know, it, it it is an interesting break. And I think it is a realization that, you know, we are in a changed world, right? Um, and mm-hmm. as great as it was that, you know, I mean, look, it used to be six school that won won all the all the national championships, right? And it's not now. And and um, uh, you know, having uh, the the Minnesota the record at Minnesota State that that Hastings did, and and being you know going as deep as he did uh, so many times is really remarkable. And I think um, you know, it's like anything, adapt or die, right? And and he. He seems like somebody who can really adapt and and recognize that, you know, as dazzling as that trophy case is, it's no indicator of future success. Yeah, and it, it really, I mean, it just goes to say, especially just where Wisconsin's been and Wisconsin has, because you're reading the book, you're you're discussing Blake's career and discussing a time that on this this was kind of a for me. I had just finished college. I started to cover college hockey, so this this is a time that really sticks out to me very much. Sure. But it's just thinking, it's thinking about all those uh, sold out Wisconsin crowds, the Kohl Center, and then just kind of contrasting that in my head with um, I've been I've been I was I was in the Kohl Center for the Phil Kessel game that you mentioned during the book very much. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you, you hit it pretty well. I was like, I have my own story on that one. It's probably not podcast appropriate, but. <laughs> let's just say i made it out of the call center so it's what yeah. matters. <laughs> one of my but, uh the, yeah sorry go ahead nate no no i was gonna say so basically but like it's like we had that and then contrast to i have been to the call center several times in the last um eight nine years where just it's been dead completely dead yeah. and just you're waiting for badger hockey to come back and just kind of reading that contrast just it's just it's really just crazy to see and think about 
Yeah, I think, you know, and, and I, I think I mentioned this in the book, but we used to hear when I was there that the Blackhawks were so jealous of the Wisconsin fan base because there were more, uh, you know, this was, this was uh, um, pre-Patrick Kane Stanley Cup, but there was, there was more uh, fans on a regular basis at Badger hockey than there was at Blackhawks hockey. And, um, and so, you know, it takes a long time to build that. And, and uh, you know, it's been in the doldrums for a long time, but um, it was, it was, rocking that it wasn't it wasn't full the upper bowl wasn't full but that night um that friday night against michigan they came back to win and and uh just coming off the go for sweep and and uh it it felt like the ceiling tiles were going to come down you know it was it was going pretty good but on the kessel thing i wanted to tell um one of my favorite interviews for the whole book was adam burrish who uh captain the 06 team and and uh is a, a like a true character, a true storyteller, and a guy could talk forever. And um, uh, and is another homegrown Madison guy, right? Who came up and came up in the legacy more of of college hockey than of the NHL, right? His his goal was always um, to play and and uh, uh, at the time play for Jeff Sauer, and then ended up being in Eve's freshman class. But uh, I remember interviewing him, and I wanted to ask him about the Castle game specifically because. Obviously, the Kessel family is also from from the Madison area, and and so he'd known him, he'd known him in, in juniors and and all that. And and I said, okay, Adam, put yourself. I know you're you're you know a, a guy had a, a good long NHL career, and you've moved on from this now. But put yourself in the place that that you were when you were 19, and you hated Minnesota more than anything, and then tell me this story. And he goes, Sam. I've won a Stanley Cup. I still hate Minnesota. <laughs> yes. That was one of my favorite parts yes. of it. Cause I, I read that and I was like, I, I, I'm trying to remember. I was like, was that Burrish? You said that? Cause that is, yeah, yeah, that is just yeah. gold. That's college hockey at yeah. its finest. That is college, it's college hockey. hockey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And, and you know, if, if you're willing to drive all the way from North Dakota, like all the way down and, you know, go, uh, go below the bridge and go on the Michigan side or whatever. And like you, you do it for a reason. Cause you really care. Yeah. Yeah. You, I think you hit on something. There's another part of the book where you're describing Minnesota and Wisconsin as like basically siblings at a Thanksgiving table. And I'm like, yeah, that pretty much is it. They're very similar. Yeah. And the similarities are what uh, kind of get all the, uh, the schools to kind of hate on one another. And just, it brings out a, it brings out something that oh. you don't fully get in the NHL. It's the best thing for me. And I, I, my, um, my dad's from the cities and uh, two, two of my uncles played, uh, Played for Badger Bob uh, at Wisconsin, and and so that's my family connection to the program. But um, uh, I have a bit of an outsider's insider perspective on on Midwest nice, and and because I I know it and and grew up around it, but I grew up on the West Coast, so uh, I'm, I'm not too close to it not to see it, and it just you know it tickles me to death that that Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa and Michigan you know are competitive about who's nicer. Uh, and, and like one, you're all the same. Uh, and two, you're, you're so angry about how you think the other one is nicer than you are in it. And it really, like, I, I worked so hard. I'm I'm thrilled to hear you say that I worked so hard on that, 
that Thanksgiving table analogy because I thought it was so appropriate. Just like the brothers, the cousins, you know, nobody hates like family. So. Yeah, no, and it's funny. I was like, because I have that as a, as an outsider to the New York City area where I see like mm-hmm. New Jersey and Long Island are the, the same brothers to Manhattan. Yeah. And they hate on each other because they don't really see each other much because it's such a pain to go from one end to the other. Sure. <laughs> like you look at a map, you're like, oh, that's like five minutes. No, no, it's like two hours to mm-hmm. go out <laughs> Right, right. Um, to go out there. And it's just, it's one of those things I'm like, yeah, it's familiarity brings content. It, I get it. Totally. Get it. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, you got to be good too. You got to be good to, to care. And, and there is so much good hockey that comes out of the Midwest and, and it's, you know, it, you get in the finals and you really, really want to win. Yeah. That, that, that kind of leads me to my next point too. Just like even building off of that and saying, all right, going back down the tree a whole ways. I mean, back to Badger Bob, back to Herb Brooks, um, mentioning uh, those guys uh, a few times in the story and just kind of reading reading what you have to say about Mike Eves, uh, especially John Hines. I think a lot of Wild fans probably listening to this might want to see is that, I mean, all these coaches, they when you think about them as separate programs, they're so different and they probably recruit differently. But is it is there still some trace of all these modern day coaches still being part of that same tree. I mean, to me, reading, reading about John Hines makes him sound like everything I've ever read about Herb Brooks and just the way he operates, the way he runs a practice um, and just reading everything and seeing all that stuff. And obviously uh, Bob Motzko being a part of that uh, inaugural uh, D one staff at St. Cloud with with Herb Brooks and um, just kind of seeing all of that trickle down from some of those big giants from 50s, 60s, 70s, kind of becoming the norm for all right this is there's the way coaches are do you, do you still kind of see in all the coaches you talk to for these stories and seeing all right obviously eves is a bit more fiery than probably some of the other guys but uh do, do you do you still see a lot of those similarities kind of come from those tendencies that those those kind of pillar franchise program pillars had oh yeah i mean i think that they all have a steel to them and you know it expresses itself in different ways and some are yellers and some are not but uh, man, there is just that level of, of toughness and, and tightness that, that feels like DNA, right? It feels like it really was imprinted and passed down and, and, you know, they're all players, right? Um, and, but they're not every player is a, is a player's coach and, and, you know, vice versa. Um, but, but yeah, there really is a common thread. And, and I do think, um, even if you're, even if you're an inherited product, right? If you're somebody who um, Heinz was brought to Wisconsin through the NTDP, right? And that all kind of, uh, that's another element of the web. But I, I really did see that. And they're, they're so funny because they're, to a man, really nice to talk to. And I mean, you guys have done your interviews, right? But, but like, by and large, it's like gracious and, and willing to chat and, and, um, some are more storytellers than others, but uh, and you talk to their players, like God, every day sounds like pain. I, it is, it is gotta just be tough to to play for these guys night in and night out. And and um, yeah, I, I saw the thread for sure. I, I it didn't make the book, but um, uh, one of the stories that I really loved, and I could never confirm this, but I'll. I'll um, speculate wildly and inappropriately and I'll, I'll pass along here is that in, uh, in 76, when Bob Johnson was coaching the Olympics, um, 
uh, and obviously the Gophers won the national championship, there there was always a really dirty rumor that Brooks had held back some of his players from the Olympic squad uh, in order to you know in order to prioritize the college game over the international game essentially, and and of course then he goes on to win the Miracle on Ice and become their Brooks that we all um, the world knows, not just Minnesotans know, um, but. Uh, that again could could never confirm it, but but what a story about that intensity of wanting to win and and really unable to see anything beyond the the game that's immediately in front of you. Yeah, that's amazing. One of those stories that just kind of fades out with the you know with with the figures that kind of goes along with them, you know. And so yep. now it just gets to it gets to be speculated on on podcasts sure. like the like this yeah. one. That's yeah. right. Yeah, unconfirmed. That's what that... Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. Exactly. The disclaimer. Yeah. Disclaimer. <laughs> just like, just like Nick's outsources say, was upper body. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's a body injury. That's okay. It's a body. It's yeah. Right. He showed a show. I hear. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> oh man. But kind of more onto the focus of Blake too, and just reading what uh, an incredible. Obviously. Um, he's an incredible character and not character in terms of like a, a funny guy, but like just his character is, seems to be impeccable for yep. um, just a guy at, at, at kind of moving through the levels and being a very stand up guy um, in, in your kind of experience and talking with people and uh, is because obviously a little bit of part of the book is his kind of commitment to being uh, uh, not necessarily the, the go-to guy, but kind of a, a translator per se between players yep. and coach. Um, is that something that in kind of your, your interviews and your process that you saw as, wow, this is really, really an outlier, or this is something that that happens only with select, a select few players or players that like Blake, or is this just an example of, of Blake being who he is and just kind of naturally fitting into such a, such a role? I mean, I think there was a lot of growth everywhere he went, but I, I think that, I think there are probably a lot of players who like to think that they play that role, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's formally and they're wearing the C or it's it's informally and they see themselves as an interlocutor and, and can kind of be that bridge. But I think in reality, it's pretty unusual. Uh, I just don't think that a lot are truly given the, the seat at the table by the coach. Um, and, you know, in the old uh, uh, player coach model, right? And, and I think you have to earn it in a big way and and then also just be willing to to sit and have those long conversations and and a lot of those guys just don't have the capacity for that right they're not going to sit and listen about struggles with girlfriends or you know um you know I remember Blake telling me about hearing from his teammates they had relatives going through cancer treatment back home and things like that and and uh you know, those are not things that people share with you unless you're a a damn good listener, uh, and B have really earned that respect. You know, I'm trying to avoid my cliches, but I think it's true on and off the ice, and and then, you know, being able to to do the same up uh, to to your coach and not just not just your assistant coach, but your head coach. And so, uh, like I said, I think there are I think there are a lot who would fancy themselves in that role, um, and it maybe appears that they do, but to do it at that depth, uh, I think is really unusual. And, and, you know, I think that I wrote a lot about this, but Blake came so hot headed into campus and was coming off the U18 gold medal and 
uh, I've been drafted by his hometown team and everything else and, and uh, really, really struggled and took, took years uh, to, to find his game and to find where his role is. But there, there's a lot to be said for doing it the hard way. And I think that the fact that he did and the fact that he was supported by this tight knit alumni group who recognized that pretty quickly he was, he was the next guy, you know, the next face on Rushmore. Um, if he, if he was given the opportunity, um, you know, supported him in that growth. And, and then when he got there, you know, by the time his game got there, he had already, from a character standpoint, uh, earned the respect. Wow. Yeah. And that's just something, too, that seems like um, kind of in the development process of being such a, a program guy and then facing the, the harsh reality of the NHL. Obviously, we've talked about it on this podcast, and Nate and I have run through a few iterations of podcasts in the, in, <laughs> over the years, and we've talked about the same thing over and over and just how how good the college game is for, I mean, and not trying to be cyclical back to the one and done or the two and done kind of guys, but um, realizing that, boy, it's, it's a much harsher reality in terms of like when you're in the AHL, the the development isn't necessarily as good. The travel isn't necessarily as good. Um, So I can see just kind of being stuck in the AHL or kind of bouncing between and, and getting some of that, uh, that dose of uh, unfortunate reality where it's like, boy, this is, is, you, you mentioned, I think you mentioned that he, he fell in love with the college game without even really trying, right? Yep. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I think too, fell in love with the, the team element of that. And and that, again, going back to, to your earlier comments, Drew, I mean, that I think is, does keep these guys on campus longer uh, because, you know, you get to the pro level and I mean, I listen to hockey podcasts and all they talk about is the salary cap, right? It's just, it is, it is a constant spreadsheet conversation and, and sure that some of that can be interesting as an exercise, but, but it it feels like it's missing the point of the game that, that, you know, we all fell in love with uh, uh, so long ago. And, and so, yeah, um, I think there's a lot, lot to be said for that. Yeah, it certainly is. And yeah, you, you go deep into the college game and Blake's time there and before, um, and you also touch on other aspects of Blake's life and hockey. What, what did you really enjoy kind of digging into, whether it's the being a homegrown player from Tennessee as the Predators start coming in and Southern, Ho- uh, Southern Hockey starts becoming more of a thing, the NTDP program, or even uh, Blake's pro career? Which, what did you really enjoy about kind of digging into all of those? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start in a in a sequential order. But the digging into the growth of the Southern program was amazing, and the fact that it's such a core part of that was, and again, little little moments that have such a big downstream effect, and and that you know the uh, General Motors opening a plant in Spring Hill, Tennessee, brings all these guys with union seniority from uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and Illinois, and their kids all play hockey, and they bring the game with them, and they go. You know, they want to go to the games and, and they want to uh, carry that love of hockey with them. And it took what was totally an experiment. And look, it has not always succeeded. Look at Atlanta, right? It, it, look at Arizona. Um, uh, but making a, a success in, in large part because that little grain um, and that, that kind of cultural import of, of hockey is as part of the fabric of the community. So uh, that was fascinating to me. Um, and then talking you know, I remember an interview, and, and I include some of this in the book, that 
this guy who's very involved in youth hockey in Nashville is driving home. He's listening to the Preds game on the radio and he hears that Blake has scored a second goal and he goes into his house and he wakes his kids up and he turns on the TV and then they watch him, you know, get the hat trick. And, and um, one, I have young kids and, and it takes a lot for me to wake them up. Right. Uh, so <laughs> that, that hit home for me. Um, but I really thought, uh, you know, what a, what a moment in time, right. Where this, this game uh, had really arrived in the South and we didn't know it until, until his name, you know, was on that stat sheet uh, next to the three goals. So uh, that was just such a cool thing for me and hearing people care so much and so deeply um, about a guy that I think could, could have easily been forgotten because of his short career. And um, and then the USA hockey stuff was was unbelievable. And, and um, you know, I love – obviously we're in World Junior season right now, and I, I love the World Juniors tournament, and I love that U.S. is competitive and that I – like being a college hockey guy, getting to see these guys play at the international level and have it televised and, and uh, have it grown as an event in the year. But knowing that like 1980 was not a high water mark, 1980 was an anomaly. And then it was just in the dumps after that for, for years and years. And there was no pride in, in wearing the colors. And, and, um, uh, and so it really took, you know, a very small group of guys uh, putting their heads together, committing to to the uh, development program as a concept, and then recruiting the right people. And and I spoke to Jordan Leopold in the process, and and just had an amazing, amazing interview with him, um, talking about being this this kid, this 16 year old, you know, high school kid, um, being absolutely scorched by the powers that be in, in Minnesota high school hockey because he would consider leaving and oh you know I, I like you, you don't understand what this means and who came before you and everything else and but for him to be a part of that and then to go home to Minnesota and play for the U and say I made it and I want a Hobie and I want a national championship and and I can be that for my country and still this for my you know my state and my hometown and, and my school uh, was just such a, a such a cool thing um, but, but it really sat on the knife's edge for a long time and it wasn't until uh, you know Kessel and then and then Blake and Kane uh, won those back-to-back um, gold medals that that uh, it was safe as a program yeah I mean you just mentioned uh, Leopold too and earlier you kind of talked about Burrish just being a, a fun interview I mean what what was your favorite uh one conversation you had with anybody and uh is there any stuff that uh didn't make the book that uh really was good and i mean not this doesn't have to be podcast appropriate because we're yeah. we're just kind of a <laughs> we're a fun loving podcast anyways but uh, i mean anything that comes to your mind that uh that, that was a good story that that didn't really necessarily make the book from a really good interview um i mean robin Dringo, who i mentioned before who is um unfortunately since passed away but um i spoke to rob a few times at a certain point, I just like talking to him. Like I gotten all I needed, but it just, he was a hell of an interview. It was amazing. Um, but I, I think about the college game now and, and how much money is in it. Um, and man, these kids are treated like they're made of glass, right? And they, they watch them really closely and they, you know, they're, there's a big, beautiful mirror. So the hair can always be right for the TV interviews and everything else. <laughs> and they were, Wisconsin was on the road, I think in Denver and Rob and uh, uh, Doug McDonald and those guys, 
I think there was a wedding at the hotel and they end up stealing golf carts and they're driving down like the main streets in Denver, just ripping them up. Um, you know, clearly had a few pops after the game and after a road <laughs> win and everything else. And, and, you know, I just like, man, that, that is the kind of thing that it'd be on Twitter in 10 seconds, every be in trouble. Somebody lose their scholarship and, you know, instead you guys got the four, five, six to a golf cart, like flying down the middle of uh, <laughs> middle of the road, and and uh, uh, you know that was that was an absolute blast. So um, I don't know. I, I mean, I had some spectacular interviews, and and uh, uh, Blake's mom could talk forever and ever, and had some really fun and funny and just. Um, you know, he, she even had a comment about when he got injured on the ice and she looks at her husband and they go, that's ah, another concussion. And I'm like, what a hockey mom comment. Like, like, what do you mean another concussion? Like, we're just so, like, with such a shoulder shrug. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I was like, it was your reality. Right. And she, she had, um, yeah, four boys and, and played and they'd seen their share and their dad played pro. And, and, um, that for me was just, uh, like a, such a funny, like hockey mom comment, like, okay, we know what it is. We're going to deal with it. And, um, uh, so, I don't know, some real gems out there for sure. Uh, yeah, that is, that is a key like tip to any up and coming journalist. So anyone who's listening to this, talk, talk to people's parents because oh, yeah. they, they know, they know the stories. They got the dirt. They will talk. It is great. Yep, for sure. Yeah. For if sure. you ever get a chance to sit with somebody's parents while like watching the, their kids play a game, also, also very great. Yep, especially the moms. Especially the yes, moms. moms. They, yes, they, yes. They have yeah, the moms. Yes, yes. Hockey moms are the true unsung hero heroes. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then you know the other part uh, for me, and and you guys know this um, on the journalism side, but if you can find somebody who is a little resentful, uh, man, that's a great interview. And they will spill all the dirt, and they'll they'll. And I remember talking <laughs> to I won't I won't name drop him, but. Um, uh, Suffice to say, he's a fairly well-known coach, and and uh, uh, I said, uh, you know, asked him some question, and it was kind of sensitive about, you know, it's like backroom politics, USA hockey, and uh, I said, is it okay if I ask you about this? And he's like, I'm bouncing around on the back of a bus in fucking South Dakota. You can ask me anything you want, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh so yeah it was um there's some there's some uh real winners for sure oh my gosh that's amazing um obviously i mean we kind of talked about it uh, just a little bit ago too but uh world juniors time you're you're big college hockey you're big world juniors guy um what are your thoughts so far obviously kind of one day in as of recording this uh a morning of uh, a few games but uh um yeah, what what do you like about? I mean, U.S. team specific. What what do you like about the what What do you like about this U.S. team uh, going up? Yeah, before? yeah. I mean, um, you know, really clean in front of the net, and it feels like you never know. Uh, it's, it's like an all star team, right? So they throw it together and they practice for 10, 11 days, and then they put them on the ice. And um, I, the, some of the passing uh, that that I saw today, knowing that it was against Norway, um, was pretty spectacular. And I think that if you can keep those feeds going. Um, and find guys at the half wall or whatever, um, uh, and really spread, uh, stretch that defense out a little bit. Um, that they, they do a lot with that room, which which is a real testament to to some of the skill guys up front too. So um, we'll see. And then you know, obviously the Canadians, uh, 
Hockey Canada is a mess, um, and they've they've had all the, the the crises that they've had over the last um, couple of years, and and so um, it feels like maybe an opportunity for uh, for the you know the perennial Canadians to to not have their heads in the game as much, and, but um, it's pretty fun. Yeah, the the prelim game, at least to me, I don't know if you saw, they ran a rerun of it, I think on Sunday, uh, but it was like a little bit, it just looked a little like kind of on half, you know, it's just prelim game. So maybe it was on just on half speed, but it looked yep. like, wow, this didn't look like either team was really gunning for exactly what it, maybe it will be in a, in a couple of days here. But yeah, uh, yeah, I just was, I was looking at that game to be like, all right, we're good to see something of USA Canada. And then it was kind of, yeah. Like, kind of a dud of a, I mean a lot of goals but kind of a dud <laughs> so it it totally like it, yeah it, it looked like at a certain point there everyone was just like okay let's not get injured let's not take a dumb penalty to get suspended mm-hmm. let's 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 try to get let's let's try to be okay with it and yeah it was it was interesting to see although that last lane hudson gold ended Oof, that beautiful. was spectacular yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh i mean that god there's some amazing highlights that, that come out of uh come out of the world juniors and it's nice uh that's changed a lot, right? Like a lot of this stuff that needs to be televised and, and the USA hockey was kind of lost. Um, you had to be a real puckhead uh, to follow it. And, and um, uh, it's cool that it's all at the fingertips now. Yeah. I mean, even I'll say probably, yeah, even Blake's playing there. It's, I don't even know if NHL network was showing it at the time. Mm-mm. I think it's, I don't think they were at that point. Mm. I think it kind of started yeah. towards the end of that, uh, the end of that decade. Right. No. Yeah. I'll say I remember in the first time I ever heard of the World Juniors was blackout years, the year that uh, Grand Forks hosted it. Just friends and I were like, you know what? Hey, this sounds like a fun thing to do during winter break. Let's go up and see it. Yeah. Hooked, hooked ever since. Right, right. Now it's a blast. But it's, um, you know, and now looking back and, and doing some of the book research, the fact that, you know, Ovechkin played and, and uh, you know, it's Taze versus Kane in the quarterfinals and, and, um, uh, there's stuff like that 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 it, it's just a reminder on the Olympic level. It's a real shame that that we have lost the best on best because um, man, there's no replicating those moments, right? Yeah, I mean yeah. this is the closest thing we get. Uh, right. I think exactly. For, yeah, age. Yeah, I mean guys who can be pros or are close to being pros is playing the yep. game at the highest level at that competition. But um, sure. you know, obviously, kind of after the break, you mentioned that since the book came out the badgers have been playing extremely well and yeah. i think i i was wrong about them i thought they would have taken a little bit longer to get uh to get more up to speed but uh they've they've really surpassed that speed limit and said you know what we're just we're going as fast as we can um what are your thoughts on the rest of their season and i mean do you think that do you think that that if i mean if slash when they make the tournament they can make some noise and and, and get somewhere what, what are your thoughts kind of just on the rest of the season for the badgers yeah, I, I do think they can get somewhere. I think, um, look, January and February are different, like you guys know, and you can look really good in November, December, uh, and then that crunch comes and there's injuries and, and uh, you know, it, we're still talking about like 20-year-old kids and, and it's hard to keep that focus. Um, but it, it, it said in my, my time with Hastings and then obviously with the track record he had at Minnesota State, um, it's – it is so interesting to see him. It feels to me like he's squeezing everything possible um, out of this group of kids and and playing 60-minute hockey in a way that I think has been missing um, 
for some time from the Wisconsin program, but it's a tough schedule, right? And looking at my circle on my calendar, I got a Badgers uh, Gophers in Madison first weekend of February. And uh, uh, if I can sneak back for that, uh, I definitely will, because obviously the Gophers have uh, have a bit of a bone to pick um, and, and they've, you know, got stars in the world juniors who might be coming back with some hardware and then, coming back to the grind of Big Ten hockey. and um, But I do think, um, you know, again, going back to that Caulfield, Hobie Baker winner year in that first round exit to Bemidji and, and um, man, it just felt like one stumble really derailed that team, right? And and they um, it did not have that, that resilience to come back. And that is, to me, what feels so different for Wisconsin hockey. And, and again, watching that Friday night versus Michigan game, being down by two goals and then coming back to win it and win it in regulation against Michigan, which has been so, so high skilled, you know, the last five, six years. And, and um, you know, tells me that it's not just about uh, the talent, um, but it's about, you know, uh, a new mentality and, and really squeezing it out of those guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there just seems that something has just been missing during, during that Cornell era because the two best teams that he had was Cole Caulfield having one of the best seasons of any college player in the last 20 years and yep. the first team that he had. Yep. And it wasn't a it wasn't for a lack of recruiting because no, Luke Cunning, brought Andrew in, Miller. Yeah, just Wisconsin brought it has has a num like a plethora of talent. Also, that's one of the scary things is going to be in the next few years seeing what Mike Hastings can do with a big 10 budget and having the facilities and the recruiting to be able to bring in some of those high end players, because he turned di- like he found so many diamonds in the roughs uh, at Mankato and, and pretty much had a style of, I'm going to find the best 19, 20 year old with their chip on their shoulder and mold them and play a insanely uh, productive team. So yeah. it's going to be really interesting on that and to see it, but yeah, just Wisconsin, it's just, yeah, I think you kind of had something really there where Wisconsin is just they've been missing something, just not being able to uh, have anything there throughout that Granado era, and there's just you see it in just three months with Mike Hastings. It's it's amazing, and I I don't know about you guys, but for me, you know, I always rooted for Minnesota is because I want them to be the best when we beat them, right? And it's just like it's no fun when when you know you're the the teams are are mismatched, um, and even even when they're uh, when you scrape out a win, I remember the Badgers beat uh, number one North Dakota on the road a few years ago, but they weren't going anywhere. You know, there was there it was it was a nice moment in the schedule, but it wasn't a precursor uh, for the tournament or anything. And and uh, so it's just for all the complaining about the blue bloods of hockey. When, when the Blue Buds are good, everybody is so into watching them. Some because the fan base are big and some because they want them to uh, to fall harder. So I think it's good for the game. Yeah, I think it is too. And I really I really kind of want to see a little bit more of that, just that crowd for Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Madison in, in a few weeks. Just It'll just be great. It's just, I mean, yeah, because I have it. It's, I, I've seen the Cole Center at its craziest. I've seen Cole Center at its deadest. I'd say, like last year, Mike Eves, that four-win season, Right. One of the saddest, just one of the saddest things to see Minnesota score four goals in 10 minutes, just the place dead quiet. And just me looking at uh, Todd Molesky, who is the, uh, the beat writer of the Badgers and just being like, this is, this, this is, this is sad. This is something that I never expected to see from Wisconsin. And right. 
you're I, I think we're I think or at least you're coming back up on the way out there with the Badgers. And yeah, college hockey is better when Wisconsin's good. It's better when Minnesota and Michigan, when BU and BC have turned the page in the last few years. Totally. Not even not even mentioning Michigan State finding right. their legs right. the first time in twelve years or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So. No, I I will always you know remember that Michigan State national championship and and you know what a what a team that was and um uh like um, say what you want about big 10 hockey but they're it is it is cool when they're good for the best to play the best and for it to be on a place where you can watch it too right and like man maybe it's actually have to play for big 10 plus but at least at least there's an opportunity right and it's not me staying on the roof with aluminum foil trying to get a radio stream from uh you know <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, or at least trying to get that like weird stream that from Anchorage back in the day that like sometimes would pop up okay. and then like it would die for a period. But you get like the yep. cool Anchorage ad. So that was kind of a win. Yep. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This is variety, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to know what you went through, Sam, to get the to get those tape recordings of probably a Midco broadcast of a North Dakota game from 15 the worst, years ago. The worst was, uh, uh, I don't know if it was a juniors game or, uh, uh, a world juniors um game or a u18 championship but i got the tapes and the sound was gone um and so i i sat there i watched 12 hours of silent hockey you know and had to sit there and read and i'm sitting there you know trying to like okay like you know looking at numbers and trying to think about shift changes and everything else and writing down timestamps and stuff like that that was that was a bit of a grind to say the least and i love hockey but man i would never do that again <laughs> Wow. Oh, oh my gosh. Man. And on that note, I do think it is time for us to end this episode of uh, MNCAA. But Sam, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about the book. And where, where can people buy it? Where can people uh, can yeah. get, where can people get a hold of this book? Yep. Uh, anywhere, uh, you know, Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, uh, any of those spots will have it. And, and um, but yeah, appreciate you guys having me on and, and uh excited to watch second half of the season and and um hopefully it becomes re required reading for all the the wannabe hockey college hockey players out there absolutely it's uh, again it's legacy on ice blake jeffreyon and the fastest game on earth so everyone please go out and read it it's a great read um so uh and yeah sam has uh, been great to have you on and uh hopefully we'll stay in touch and uh hopefully if uh, if the gophers and badgers meet uh, in some in, in a pretty uh, let's say intense scenario in the future here. We'll, we'll have to get your thoughts again, but uh, thanks again Absolutely. so much for joining us. Yep. Take care, gentlemen. Awesome. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year. Uh, with that, uh, that'll end this episode of uh, MNCAA. Uh, please tune in again next week. Thanks.